you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 9. We will be uh, finishing chapter 9 this morning as well as entering into chapter 10. And so I'm thankful for these these last several weeks that we have, have been able to study Romans 9 together. I, I know that it's been a, a challenge, but it's it's been a, a good few weeks in this good chapter. And so uh, this morning we are continuing through this study, looking at verses uh, chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through chapter 10, verse 4, which I will read for us here as we begin. So look with me at Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. Paul writes, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come seeking help. God, I I come seeking help in in clarity of, of speech, clarity of thought, clarity of intent, clarity of meaning. God, may may your word this morning be clear. May our hearts, the deep recesses of our hearts, may they be brought to the surface so that we may see them clearly. And would you teach us the great beauty, the great wonder of your gospel, that there is nothing we can do or must do to be saved. We need only trust that you have done it all. Teach us these things and more this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I've said, we've spent the the last month or more talking about God's election. How, How God chooses to save those whom he chooses to save. He gives mercy to those whom he gives mercy and he hardens those whom he hardens. And while I know that this has been a difficult doctrine for us to understand, I'm thankful for your patience as well as your work in understanding it. Because it's a necessary doctrine, and I think it helps us to understand why we are saved. It isn't anything in us that warrants God's grace. It isn't anything in us that is deserving of salvation. 
But we have been given his grace because he has chosen to give us his grace. And that is very gracious of him. Now, that being said, I I want to begin this morning by saying something that will at first seem to undermine the last month plus of preaching. But as I I hope you'll see, it doesn't undo this teaching at all. What What I want to say is this election. God's election is important. But election is not enough to save anyone. Election is not enough to save anyone. Does God choose whom he will save? Yes. Does his choosing accomplish our salvation? No. God's election is the cause, is the initiation, is the the beginning of our salvation, but it is not the means by which we are saved. The Bible is clear for anyone to be saved. It's not just that they are chosen by God, but that those chosen by God place faith in Christ for salvation. We are not justified by election. We are justified by faith. God's election initiates, but faith is the means of our justification. And so without faith, regardless of God's choosing, without faith, we will not be saved. But rest assured, those whom God chooses to save, he also provides faith that they will believe and be saved. And and I I believe this is a great comfort in in many ways for us. Because I've heard from from many of you over the last few weeks, uh, whether it was right after the sermon as you were leaving or, or a conversation later in the week. And and how you're you're wrestling with this doctrine of election, wrestling with what this means for for me. And I think that's great. And some of you have, have, have said, I'm just praying that I'm one of his elect. I'm just praying that I'm one of his chosen. And and I, I understand the heart behind those words. I really do. I've said them myself. But I think it misses the point. Because the question of salvation isn't. Am I one of God's chosen? But rather, do I believe in Jesus? Do I have faith in his finished work? And if you do have faith, then that proves that you have been chosen. Because only the chosen have faith. Now, Paul has been and has been writing in Romans nine about the, the current state of Israel's salvation Going to to great lengths to show us that God's word has not failed, despite Israel's failure to be included among the people of God. And as he continues here, he is he is showing us why Israel has been left out. It is not only because God has chosen to save only a remnant of Israel, but it's also that Israel lacks the faith required for salvation. That that this is why Israel is not saved. They do not believe in the finished work of Jesus. Instead, they have chosen a different path, a path that will that will ultimately fail to save them. You see, in Paul's words here that in these verses that I've just read, there is a, a running theme in these verses. And, and I mean that literally the theme is running. And you can see how he uses the words pursue, obtain, succeed in reaching. These are words used of racers, of, of people competing and running a race 
with the final goal, the finish line being the prize which they are chasing, which they are pursuing. And so with that in mind, with this idea of running in mind, I want to look at these two groups of racers that Paul puts forth here. Jews and Gentiles. But it's not just about who they are as people, but it's about the types of races that they are running. And why one of them succeeds in reaching the finish line and reaching the goal they have been pursuing and one of them will fail. Because you see, there's there's two races, there's two paths by which we pursue righteousness. And those two races are a race of works and a race of faith. One of them will fail every single time. It is a race you and no one else who runs it will ever win. You will never reach the finish line. And one of them, you will always reach the finish line because someone has reached it for you. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to look at these two races, these two races and what happens when we run on works and what happens when we run on faith. And I want to walk you through these verses to show you where Paul, how I see it in these verses, how Paul teaches these things. So first, what happens when we run on works? What happens when we run on works? You see, when we run the race of works, there are three reasons that we fail to achieve the righteousness that we pursue. First, the law becomes our downfall. The law becomes our downfall. Look at look at verse 31 in chapter nine. Paul says Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, there's there's really nothing at all that surprising about this verse. It almost reads Israel tried. They gave it a good effort. They ran the race really, really hard. But ultimately, they just couldn't quite make it to the end. They got close. They just didn't finish. And honestly, if this were an actual race, if you were standing on the sidelines watching Israel run a literal race here, you would look at the effort they put in and go and you'd applaud them. And you'd say, man, they, they didn't make it. They didn't finish, but they tried really, really hard. Kudos to them for the effort they put in. Good try. But you see, what makes this verse difficult is when we put this in the realm of salvation, when we put this race in, in not just a, an effort thing, when we put this and we talk about it in terms of God's salvation, eternal life, then the effort that Israel or anyone else puts in means nothing. Effort means nothing. I mean, there's so many people, especially even today among the church, who are trying really, really hard to please God, to do what's right. They go to church, they read their Bible when they can, they pray when they need help, they don't kill, they try, to not, they try not to lie, they pursue purity in their singleness or their marriage, they, they do everything that they can, and they're trying really, really hard. They know they're not perfect. They know they've made mistakes. But they're trying. And ultimately what we see is and what we feel when we look at these people, and maybe we even are these people, and we hold it up to God and we say, I know I haven't done everything right. 
And I know that I've made some mistakes along the way, but I've tried really hard and I think God's going to give me credit for that. God's going to be pleased. God's going to be happy that at least I tried. But church, I need you to hear me on this. You don't get credit for trying. It is not a A for effort here when it comes to salvation. You either reach the finish line or you don't. And when Paul says that Israel failed to reach their goal, he's not saying good try. He's saying they remain cut off from God. I mean, this is something he's already addressed in this letter. You can go back to to Romans 3, where Paul is showing that the law is powerless to save anyone because no one can meet the righteous requirements of that law. In Romans 3, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the law was never meant to provide a path for us to run our way to God. It was never given as a a race course for us to give it our best effort and see if we can make it. But rather the, the law... Is more along the lines of telling someone that they have to run a thousand miles without stopping and they've got an hour to do it. It's impossible. You can't do that. No one can. And so what the law does reveal is it reveals to us just how sinful we are, how incapable we are of keeping and obeying God's commands as we should. And when we try to run this race on works, the law, the very thing that we believe will save us, the very effort that we're putting in to try and reach this righteousness. It only condemns us. But it also goes much deeper than that. I think if you if we skip down a few verses to chapter 10, verse three, again, Paul here is speaking of Israel and he says, for being ignorant Of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, we've talked about this in the last few weeks, but let me say it again here. If you can save yourself, whether by choosing Christ or by obeying the law, then you would deserve some of the praise, some of the glory that God will receive at the end. After all, you did it. You made it. You chose. You obeyed. And so in this idea and in this framework, we should, even even God should praise us for doing what he required. But the only one who's going to receive praise and glory at the end of it for salvation is God who saves. Not you, not me, not anyone else. When we attempt to save ourselves, we will fail. And the very law, whether it's the Mosaic law of the Old Testament or our own system of doing what we think God wants. Trying to do what is good and right. 
What we are doing and what we are saying to God is, God, your righteousness is good, but I'm going to do it myself. I don't need your righteousness. I'm going to try and put my righteousness up instead. As if we could hold up our righteousness and put it next to God's and say, yeah, they're close. You see, whatever little righteousness you could possibly obtain will never hold up to the size and magnitude of the righteousness of God. They aren't the same. They're not even close. It's like holding a quarter up to the sun and thinking, yeah, they're about the same size. All that really is happening is your perspective is flawed. Those two things will never be the same. And yet this is what so many of us do when we try to work our way to God. We hold up the little quarters, the little pennies of our salvation, and we hold it up next to the sun. And we say, it's close. God will will at least see that I tried. It's got to count for something. Does it? The law, the effort, the works that we've spent our entire lives doing ultimately does one thing for us. It condemns us. When we run on works, the law becomes our downfall. Second, when we run on works, the cornerstone becomes the stumbling stone. The cornerstone becomes the stumbling stone. Look at the end of verse 32. Paul, Paul's writing again. He's talking of Israel. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Paul, Paul's quoting Isaiah 28 here. He's, he's speaking of Christ. He says, when we are running the race of works, Christ becomes something in the middle of that race course that we trip over. That we stumble over. And the reason this is, is because Christ puts all of our best efforts to absolute shame. See, we need to, we need to understand, both, both for ourselves and for those that we are sharing the gospel with, that the, the gospel is offensive. It's not some nice little cutesy story that we share with our friends and loved ones and we talk about how nice this makes us feel. To a non-believer and to us, deep down, to sinners... The gospel is offensive. Or to use the the Greek word that Paul uses here, the the word is scandalon. It's scandalous. The gospel is scandalous. It goes against everything that deep down we believe, whether we want to admit this or not. Because the gospel says not only can you not save yourself. Not only are you powerless, not only are you weak, not only are you incompetent, but that there's no point in even trying. When we look at every other religion around the world. Jews say that to be saved, you must obey God's law. Muslims say that to be saved, you must submit to Allah and do all he commands. Buddhists say to be saved, you must walk and do the the noble eightfold path. Hindus say that to be saved, you must serve your family gods and and goddesses in each and every one of the world's religions. There is something that you must do to be saved. 
And then the gospel of Jesus comes in and says, you can't do anything. There's nothing you can do to be saved. And so when we proclaim the gospel of Christ, the reason that the gospel of Christ is so offensive is because what we are saying when we proclaim it, we are echoing the final words of Jesus from the cross. It is finished. The work is done. You need do nothing. All the work, all the effort, all the things that are required for salvation, they're done. And you didn't do any of them, you couldn't do any of them, and you can't add anything to them. They are done. And we see this again, Paul echoes this in chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the end of it. It's over. It's done. It's finished. But this confronts everything about who we are as people who believe that I have the power and I have the ability to make God happy. That I can earn his favor. And therefore, I have to do something to be saved. And when Christians go out and we proclaim this message that the work is done, people refuse to believe it because it's too offensive. It's too scandalous. I mean, even Christians have a hard time with this, don't we? We live as though, yes, Christ died for my mistakes and my failures. But now it's up to me not to make any more mistakes or fail anymore. Because if I do, if I I fail, then I might be condemned. And you see, when we do this, when this is the, the way that we think about our lives and about our works and our salvation, when we run on works and we begin thinking this way, what happens is our relationship with Christ becomes slightly askew. Christ, who who is given to us as the bedrock, the, the foundation, the cornerstone of our faith and our salvation, instead of being the one thing that we rest on, He becomes the thing we trip over. Because we cannot comprehend a world in which God requires nothing of us to save us. And when we run this race of works, we cannot accept the finished work of Christ. And the cornerstone becomes to us a stumbling stone. We trip over him. We fall flat on our faces. Third, when we run the race of works. Third, zeal becomes foolishness. Zeal becomes foolishness. Look at at chapter 10, verse 2. Paul says, For I bear them, he's again speaking of Israel, For I bear Israel witness that they have a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You see, Paul never for one second contests that Israel does not love God. He never says that they don't desire to do good. He he doesn't say that they hate God's law. He says they love God, and that's not the issue here. The issue is that this zeal that Israel has for the things of God is a zeal that does not know God and is therefore foolish. Have you ever known a, a passionate person? Someone who's really excitable. And very easily at that. 
We have, have two very passionate little people in our home. And the second that they hear mom and dad talking about the, the plans for the day or even plans for us to do something in the future. I mean, they are ready to go. They could hear us talking this afternoon and say, you know what, should we should we plan a, a winter skiing trip this this winter? Should we make plans, book a, a cabin? Should we should we figure out what we want to do? And if they hear those from the from the other room, both of my children will run into their closets, grab their winter coats and hats and then be buckling themselves into their car seats before we can even turn around and realize what's happening. I mean, I, they're passionate and it's great. I love that energy and that excitement in little ones. I love that my kids and really most kids get that excited about almost everything. But at the same time, that level of passion can be dangerous. I mean, if, if my kids are that passionate about going skiing, that they're ready to put on winter coats and hats and go sit in an, a, a, a turned off car at the end of July, they're putting themselves in a dangerous position. But they're excited and they're zealous and they're passionate and they can't wait. But it's dangerous. Israel loved God. They wanted to obey God. They wanted to to please God and they were passionate about it. But because they lacked the knowledge of God, of who he truly is, that zeal led them down a path that they could never succeed in walking. This is exactly what we do when we run on works. We foolishly endanger ourselves by our passion. When we run on works, zeal becomes foolishness. Now, loved ones, this race of works, it is a losing race. You will never reach the finish line here. And it does not matter how passionate you are, how how driven or ambitious you are placing faith in a house built on shifting sands and it's going to crumble and collapse with you inside of it. You, on your own strength and merit, will never be capable of pleasing God. You will never save yourself on your works, but instead you will spend your entire life trying to make God happy with you, wondering if he's ever going to be pleased, hoping that one day he's just going to smile at you. And you will find at the very end, instead of a God who's pleased, you will find a God of judgment and a God of wrath. Do not run the race of works. But instead, run the race of faith. Let me, let me show you what this race looks like in comparison. You see, when we run our works, our, our zeal is foolishness. Christ is the stumbling stone and the law is our damnation. And yet, when we run on faith, those same three features are transformed and almost flipped on their heads. Let me show you. It begins with Christ in this race of faith. The stumbling stone, what used to trip us up, now becomes the cornerstone. The Bible says that for us to be saved, we must believe in Jesus. We must have faith. 
And this belief is not just intellectual. It's not just saying a few words that the pastor tells you to repeat. Faith in Christ means resting, trusting that his work was enough. It means trusting that everything that needs to be done for you to be saved has been done by Christ. And it means resting. You see, those who run on works, they stumble over Christ. He trips them up because he says, you can't do it, but I've done it for you. And you need do nothing else except trust that I have done it. It's hard to do. I mean, it really is. And yet, when we believe in him, when we place our faith in Christ, the very stone that used to trip us up becomes to us a cornerstone, a foundation stone that our entire lives can be built on. Look at look at chapter nine, verse 30. This is what Paul is saying. He says, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. Paul is pointing out, he's pointing to a truth that deeply offended Israel. I mean, Israel spent generation after generation after generation running this race to God, working, trying, running. And after every generation, they were no closer to the finish line than when they had started. And here, Paul says that the Gentiles, a people that weren't even competing, they never ran towards God. They never pursued righteousness of God. They have somehow found it. I mean, can you imagine if you went to the the New York City Marathon and you decided that you're not a runner, but you wanted to just stand there at the finish line and watch and applaud and cheer on those who are competing because it's exciting. And so you stand there for a couple of hours. You watch the runners come in. The first place runner crosses that finish line and you couldn't be more excited. And then at the awards ceremony, the the. Operator, the facilitator of the event, calls you up and puts you in the first place trophy and says, and hands you the first place medal and says, good job. You made it. Can you imagine the offense that the actual runner who crossed that finish line in first place, how angry he'd be with you? How angry he'd be with the, the marathon operators, the, the staff. This is this is what happened. This is what Paul is saying happened with the Gentiles. Israel is running the race. They're the only ones running the race and they can't make it. And yet somehow people who never even entered the race are the ones who crossed the finish line. How can this be? And it's simple. Because they had faith. They had faith that someone else ran the race for them. That someone else did for them what they knew they could never accomplish. They believed God and God counted it to them as righteousness. Christian, you know this better than anyone, or at least you you should know it. Faith in Christ is not something you do. It is something you rest in. Placing faith in Christ means putting down all of your works and all of your efforts and resting in his finished work. Because his work is just that. It is finished. And everything that you are in God's sight is not because of anything that you have done or could do or will do. But it rests on what Christ has done for you. And what used to trip you up has now become the pillow on which you rest your head in the evenings. 
The stumbling stone has become for you the cornerstone of everything that you are, everything that you will be, and everything that you hope for the future. Because the stumbling stone has become the cornerstone. He is everything. He is central to all that you've built. And all that God has done in you is built around the finished work of Christ and nothing more. And when we run this race on faith, when Christ becomes this cornerstone for us, the law then becomes not our downfall, not our damnation. The law then becomes our delight. Go back and read chapter 10, verse 4 again. Because Paul says, for, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, it would be easy for us to read that verse, and in fact, many have, and say, Christ has done it all. Therefore, the law no longer applies to me. I don't have to do good. I don't have to pursue holiness because Christ has done it all. It's the end. The law is over. But while Christ has fulfilled the law, the, the moral law of God is never removed from the people of God. It's just no longer the burden that it once was. That's not a perfect analogy, but I, I think it helps. When I was a kid, I, I used to hate cleaning our house. Absolutely hated it. Mom would come in. We've got grandparents coming over in three months, so we need to clean the house today. And I, it never made sense to me why we had to clean. Because it's just going to get messy again. What's the point of just doing something when you know just by being in this room, it's going to get dirty? And so I I hated it and I pushed back against it. I did it. I I obeyed eventually. I don't think that counts as obedience, though. But and while, while I still don't love cleaning. There is still something that I have found as an adult. There is something about having a clean house, about waking up in the morning, walking out of your bedroom into a clean room, into a clean kitchen, into a clean living room that brings some kind of strange, supernatural joy and peace to my soul. I don't get it. I still hate cleaning, but I understand that having a clean house brings peace. See, the thing is, this law of cleaning the house, my opinions towards the law of cleaning the house, they haven't really changed. I still don't like it, and it's still a burden. But yet my perspective and my understanding of what having a clean house feels like has changed. And I think it's the same with God's law. This used to be a burden that I couldn't carry. It was too heavy. What's the point of obeying the first commandment if I'm just going to break the ninth? What's the point of cleaning myself up if I'm just going to make a mess of it again? But now in Christ, I know that I'm going to get dirty. I know that I'm going to make a mess of things. And yet, when I see the work, his work by his spirit cleansing me from all unrighteousness, there is a joy and a peace that goes deep within my soul and it spurs me on to want to keep cleaning, to obey his law. Not because I can keep it perfectly, but precisely because I know that he does not condemn me for my mess. But he works with me. He works in me to clean it up for me. Christian, the law of God still applies to you. Don't, don't think for a second that it doesn't. 
You are commanded to pursue holiness because the God you serve is holy. But because of the finished work of Christ, you no longer have to obey God's law to earn your place, to earn his favor, to make him happy with you. Because the reality is that in Christ, God is happy with you. He is pleased with you. He smiles at you. He sings over you. He dances over you. Because of Christ. And now you can obey the law of God. And you can do it knowing that you will fail. Knowing that you'll make a mess of it. And at the same time knowing that God's opinion of you will never change. I mean it really. Is there any other way? I think that it it is only in Christ. That you and I can sing with the psalmist. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to the promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. In Christ, the law of God, what used to be our downfall, what used to be our damnation, has transformed into our delight. Lastly, When we run the race of faith, when zeal is driven by a knowledge of God, our passion becomes directed towards the lost. You see, we saw at the beginning of chapter nine how how Paul's unceasing anguish over the fact that Israel stood cut off from God. I mean, he he goes even so far to, to make the statement that I wish that I myself were cut off and accursed from God so that they might be saved. And if you notice how he begins chapter 10, he begins with the very same heart. Look at the first verse of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's not giving up on Israel. He's not casting them off and saying, well, that's on them. He is praying for them. His heart's desire is that they will be saved. And this is not a small matter for Paul. It's not something fun that he likes to think about as his mind wanders during the day. This is something that he yearns for, that he prays for, that he pursues and runs after is the salvation of the lost. See, it's this zeal for those that are far from God that led Paul to endure unimaginable suffering as he was persecuted time and time again by the very people that he so desperately longs to see saved. I mean, you can read about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That passage has always amazed me as Paul writes down and recounts all of the things that he's endured. And and I always used to read this and go, why would anyone subject themselves to all of this? And then more than that, how could anyone subject themselves to all of this? 
And the answer, I believe, is found in Romans 9 and Romans 10. Among other places, Paul had a passion, a zeal, to see the lost saved. And that passion, that zeal, was not unfounded, it was not foolish, but it was rooted, firmly built on the knowledge of God, of who He is. Because ultimately, Paul understood and he knew that God desires the lost to be saved. That God is pursuing the lost. That he is calling his people to himself. And if God is passionate for the lost, if God is pursuing the lost, if God is calling people to himself, then Paul knew, saying, Paul himself said, because I know who this is who God is. Because I know this is the passion that God has. I too will be passionate for the things of God. And so must we. If we are running the race of faith. If we know who God truly is. Then we will see that he has a zeal and a passion for the lost. That he is calling people to himself. And I think that those who are running the race of faith also must share that passion and that zeal. Christian, there, there are two races that everyone runs in this life. That's it. A race of works. A race based on my ability, my strength, my endurance, my effort. And a race of faith. A race that says, I can't reach the finish line. But someone else has reached it for me. You see, the race of works condemns you by your failure to keep the law of God. The race of works causes you to to stumble over the finished work of Christ. And it turns your passion, your zeal into foolishness, carelessness, danger. But the race of faith, however, rests in the finished work of Christ, who is the cornerstone of our faith. It teaches us to delight in the law of God, not to earn God's acceptance, but to to obey his law, knowing that we've already been accepted. And the zeal that we have becomes based on the knowledge of God, of who he is, and it drives us to pursue the lost and by his grace and by his power, lead them to saving faith in Jesus. See, the reality, the, the, the reality of Romans 9.30 through 10.4 is this. Everyone is running a race. The question then becomes, for us and for everyone around us, are you running the right race? Are you running the right race? Pray with me. Father, help us. Help us to believe. Help us to have faith. To trust your word. To trust the work of Christ. To rest in him. Father, where, we, where there are areas in our lives that we are trying to earn your favor and to earn your smile. Teach us to repent of these things. Cause us to stumble over Christ, to fall on our faces and to realize what we are doing. 
And may that stumbling be a grace to us, be a mercy to us. I pray that we would stumble here and stumble over Christ in this life instead of stumbling over him in the next. So, Father, teach us, teach us these things, reveal to us which race we are running and give us faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.